Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff. My name's Tucker, and Jeff, I hate to say this, but I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, those are those are fighting words where I'm from. Yes, yes. No, um, so kind of continuing on our conversation uh, from last week. Last week we reviewed um, season one of The Sinner, and this isn't this episode's not going to be a whole retread of the rest. <laughs> this of is the show. season one, episode two. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I uh, I did want to say that I did watch a season two of The Sinner, and what's interesting is that you had told me going in that season two was your favorite, and I have to say I kind of preferred season one. I just did. Uh, Hang on. What Jeff doesn't realize is that this is not a visual medium. And what he just did, um, which he can explain for himself... Um, so I, I got up and left the left the house in frustration. Hopefully I'll I'll like I'll bump the gain on that so maybe you can hear it a little clearer in post. Um yeah, no, so that that is a pretty firm disagreement for me. Um I was a I was much more of a big fan of season two. I was super into it. Season one's great, don't get me wrong, but um yeah, so that's a that's definitely a bit of a rift here for us. Here's 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 what I mean. And to be clear, I don't think season two was bad. I think that uh, the acting was still uh, top notch. Um, we were d- definitely, I think, missing Jessica Biel this uh, season. Sure, sure, sure. But um, now here, I guess, is the problem. And the problem I have with season two of The Sinner kind of stems from my problem with this whole recent trend in media. You see it with. Yes, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Yes, the final bits of Game of Thrones. This idea that writers have in their head that subverting expectations is automatically and necessarily good writing. Because for anyone who has not seen the show, it would be hard to very quickly recap the um, second season to uh, <laughs> uh, to to make apparent what is like my, my problem with it. So honestly, um, it, it's if, a little convoluted. If, if you've not seen the second season of The Sinner, uh, go watch it before listening to this, or just like skip the next few minutes at least, because I'm not even going to pretend to recap it. But the point is, I didn't like how it ended in the sense that the big revelation was that the kid was actually like the half-brother of the woman working on the case, um, the son of her dad, who she had this uh, relationship with that was kind of prickly. But uh, I just feel like... Well, and conceived through an assault yes, as well. Yes, but... Um, of her, at the time, girlfriend. It's a lot. It's a well, lot. not girlfriend, like... It, it, yeah, it's a lot. But it's a whole lot. See, the problem is, if you had not seen, like, what, the last episode of the second season of that show, it would still be weird to explain, because honestly, this is not something that was foreshadowed to a great extent. And honestly, this is the direction that I thought they were going in. And I know I said something similar with the first season, where there were a few red herrings being planted. But with the second season, 
there's a cult in this show, and the cult places a great amount of emphasis on sacrifice, sacrificing the things in your life that are holding you back and that sort of thing. We see that ritualistically, the cult will take objects that have tied them down to the past and they'll cast them into a fire so they can be rid of it, right? We also see that, um, you know, oh, the, the, the cult leader at one point, they make a real big point of emphasizing he gets a calf, right? And the whole community is going to raise it together so that when they finally sacrifice it, it will be more meaningful that they have it out of their lives, right? And then finally, um, we get, and I don't know if actually this is like chronologically before or after, but you take the point, which is um, we have the flashback where um, it's revealed that um, the cult leader has, to the best of the audience's knowledge at this point, gotten this one woman pregnant. And even though there are typically not children in his cult commune, um, they're going to keep this kid and raise him together as a community. So he'll be a group project. Oh, you were hoping they were going to slaughter the kid. I I wasn't hoping. It was just... (laughs) It was just that it was logically what they were kind of leading toward. Right. They were leading toward, Okay, you thought that the controversy was that the kid was being kidnapped by these people in the beginning to either um, save him from or deliver him to this sacrifice. And that's what all of the um, background information, all the flashbacks in the show were clearly leading up to. You didn't know whether this woman, as portrayed by uh, Carrie Coon, who, you know, is basically his foster mother. Um, you didn't know whether she was going to be pro-sacrifice or anti-sacrifice that there were mixed signals either way. So that created some of the tension, right? And then they just completely forwent that at the very end with saying, well, actually they, they just dropped that plot point. They didn't even really resolve it. They just said, Oh, oh by the way, this kid is the act, actually the son of some other guy in the show who it's not previously been established. There was a real connection between these two characters. Uh, it's it was it was a reach for me. It was I, a reach. And see, I I can understand why you know, especially if the way that you were connecting the dots that kind of felt like a snub. See, for me, when they started burying the lead, I just kind of went with them burying the lead and was just like, well, all right, here we go. Here we go. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, so, you know, I, I hadn't really put together that maybe the sacrificing the child was even like kind of a logical conclusion of a through line. I didn't even see that okay. frankly. Okay. So like, you know, for me, the biggest frustration with season two was just all the emphasis put on, um, uh, Heather Novak and her relationship with this other girl who winds up being the mother of Julian, who mm-hmm. is the child. And, like just because it's it's such a a weak narrative point in my mind like mm-hmm. the whole thing basically what we're led to believe is they were dating at one point and then uh the other one of the characters is like oh i don't want to be like gay anymore i don't like you like that or whatever and the other one can't like get over the feelies or whatever which like i get but that doesn't make for good strong narrative when you're dealing with like a cult and mm-hmm. assault and kidnapping and all of these things and so for me, anyways, the the ending where Julian kind of sets his own boundaries and gets to kind of be master of his fate a little bit more was mm-hmm. really like satisfying. I saw that as a big conclusion because I think that's ultimately what uh, Harry Ambrose wanted out of the case was to restore some of Julian's autonomy. Sure. And 
Look, again, in the first season, I understand that there were red herrings. They suggested something creepier that ultimately didn't go anywhere. But I think the reason why it worked with the twist in the first season was because they had spent so much time um, in flashbacks developing the relationship between Cora and Phoebe in a way that would have felt organic even if there had not been a twist, right? Because yeah, it was yeah, important yeah, yeah. background for... So ultimately, it all comes... Everything works again on, upon rewatch, right? All of the plot threads ultimately matter in the end whereas with this second show with the second season again i feel like there was a lot of time essentially wasted in the flashbacks that um ultimately are setting up plot points or at least suggestions that don't go anywhere now i interpreted those ancillary flashbacks as more so just fleshing out kind of the ideology of the cult and not so much as plot device but i can understand why that would be but and even that would have worked if the cult's ideology had been more fleshed out or more meaningful, more codified, yeah, more, more meaningful in the end game. Again, the end game there almost didn't even need to be a cult for a lot of it because for for a lot for a lot of the emotional payoff, such as I think uh, they were getting at, because uh, it it was ultimately about this conflict between this woman and her father and this uh, and this other woman who was, you know, her friend and very briefly the yeah. objective or, but yeah, so well, it's for again. And it's just like, for me, the it's, it's kind of the same thing in season one where it almost feels like the show intentionally misses its own point mm-hmm. because, you know, in, in season one, the much bigger story is the fact that there's potentially this old money, weird sex cult thing operating out of a country club right or the narcotics ring and this one arguably the bigger point is i don't know this weird cult that seems to have such deep claws in this community that like a known obgyn literally kills himself upon being confronted or the da the yeah the the da was being like being paid off to not you know talk about the cult and stuff and all of these long-standing community members were cult members but then again, Harry doesn't care about that because that doesn't affect Julian, who is his principal interest. So I think that if anything, the show is consistent about <laughs> Bill Pullman doesn't know what the fuck a good plot point is because he's just not interested in the Boeing 747 crashing behind him. He's all about the anthill that's sitting in front of him. Yeah. And again, Second season was not bad. There's a lot to commend in the individual moments with the specific characters and interacting with one another. And it's always a joy to see Bill Pullman kind of chewing through a case. But at the end of the day, it just felt less cohesive than the first season, which is why I were forced to compare the two. My preference would be uh, the first. Yeah, sure. And I, I think that's a very I think those are all very valid criticisms. I do not agree. But okay. I think they're very valid criticisms. And Can I also just say the scene between uh, Bill Pullman and Carrie Coon when she's uh, she's given him the work. Mm. That's what she calls the therapy thing is the work where so she leads him around in the in the woods forever. And then he like twists his ankle and he wanders into this cabin and she's grabbing him by the throat after all this warm buildup. And she's like, what do you want? And he just says oblivion. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 
It was it was fairly hot. It was steamy. She, she is an attractive woman. But yeah, no, uh, I've only seen the first episode of this third season thus far, so I um, yeah. I can't really comment. Well, hey, I'm glad to see you making your way through it, whether or not we're going to talk about it on the pod. It's a good show. Yeah, no. So. Uh, but again, we decided that the uh, second season of The Sinner was not going to be the focus of this episode. We just wanted to kind of get that off our chest. Yeah, let's get back to season one. All right, here we go. So in the first episode, Cortinetti's nails. Right. Uh, no. Deeply symbolic of something, I'm sure. Um, we we could actually maybe, with the to the extent that at least anecdotally I've seen this show start to like get traction on social media because oh someone knows you on Netflix and then told all their friends and now you have a small current of people talking about the show we could get in on the ground and just make this a dedicated show about analyzing the sin <laughs> like every little small thing about the sinner so that when people go back they're like oh I'm catching up on the show who who has analysis it'll be us It'll be us. We're, we will absolutely go down. Frame by frame. Yes. Just make shit up. Just lie. Just lie. Just like, oh, yeah. And Who's going to know? Scene, in this scene, there's an inverted cross, which shows the clearly demonic nature. of. No one's going to go back and verify that. But in their head, it works with the story they've already kind of built for themselves because they already think there's something creepy here. So we will be just uh, making everyone's lives a little bit more uh, rich by lying. <laughs> You know, what What are lies if not decorations for the truth, you know? What are lies if not the truth, but better? <laughs> uh, no, uh, we are talking about the Conjuring Cinematic Universe in this episode. Which really just lends credit to the last several episodes. I feel like we've done a lot of talking recently about how everybody wants the cinematic universe and wants to turn everything into a cinematic universe. This, for me, was the opposite of the Pyramid Paradigm, where they just started making Conjuring movies. And I feel like they just kind of kept going because they kept doing well at the box. And then all of a sudden, they ended up with a cinematic universe. It it almost happened by accident because to, to like illustrate this, the best movie in this series might be the movie that is the prequel to a spinoff about a doll that showed up for maybe five minutes in the first movie, which so, is meta as fuck. And, but it's kind of awesome that again, someone out there is like just doing what we said we're going to do with the center. Just going by through these <laughs> movies frame by frame and saying, you know what? That could be something. And, and they're actually going and doing it. And so, you know, kudos to them. Um, but no, it's funny because when Jeff suggested this on Friday, I had not seen any film in this series. I completely, as he has put it before, canon blind. I mean, my watch is listening. <laughs> uh, I, I've been, you know, through pop culture osmosis, I was vaguely aware of what it was about and everything. But um, over the course of this weekend up to this point, I've seen all three mainline films in the Conjuring series, including the most recent one, The Devil Made Me Do It. And I saw um, Annabelle Creation because it turned out I had a little bit more time to kill. And I was like, you know, what? I'm going to fuck around and watch this movie. Uh, primarily for two reasons, because A, it was a... I I had just known I'd heard that it was like a pretty good movie, even yeah. like better than the first Annabelle movie certainly, and B because the director because this movie did surprisingly well with the critics and at the box office of uh, the studio uh, Warner Brothers they gave him Shazam 
like the, oh, the superhero okay. movie. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so you know, I, I wanted to see kind of, and I really like Shazam, so I was like, okay, let's see where this, uh, what what got him his job. As long as I'm on this topic, so uh, that's where I am with the franchise right now. Yeah, and so my relationship with it was a little bit more um, just kind of seeing it as it happened. I remember I saw the first Conjuring. Uh, fairly close to when it came out. I didn't see it in theaters, but the the in-theater hype for that film was absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. It was like the scariest thing. It kind of like... And so I I don't want to get like too far into making big sweeping claims about things, but like the first Conjuring movie definitely had a lot of impact in terms of just your very straightforward, traditional, modern horror. I think it does that better than a lot of films. And again, my opinion. But um, and then, you know, seeing the other ones, I kind of just hodgepodge them as they came on to streaming. Uh, I haven't seen the Annabelle original one or the sequel to that, but I've seen all the other five films in the franchise, including The Nun, which is the first one chronologically. And then, um, yeah, the yeah. ones that Tucker listed. So both fairly familiar with the franchise still have two Annabelles left for both of us. But, you know, it's funny. It's like I do remember there was a fairly solid amount of hype for this. But for the longest time, I kind of conflated in my mind at least the first Conjuring movie with the first Insidious movie. Yeah. And and, and this is not a silly thing because um, they were both directed by the same guy, James Wan. They both star the same guy, Patrick Wilson. And uh, mm -hmm. even though, I guess, over the years, it kind of became more and more clear to me that um, these were separate things, because this was a movie, The Conjuring, the first one specifically about demonic possession, throughout the whole movie, this weekend, I swear to God, I was waiting for the moment where, like the iconic moment that everyone knows, even if they haven't seen the movie, uh, where Patrick Wilson kind of walks and like the demon slowly shows up behind him. And then I realized afterwards, oh, that must have been insidious. <laughs> yeah. And that's literally the shot that ruined the entire film. <laughs> Everybody loves it. Um, I wasn't planning to uh, contrast insidious, but I can do that because I also enjoyed I, see I, uh, I enjoyed that film. It's pretty good. I think overall insidious missed a mark that the conjuring was more able to land insidious built up in such a way and the mytho like the way that the world worked was like really cool and everything like that but the ending like the way that you see the demon and just the way that it all plays out sucks it's not good i'm sorry the end of that film's not great well i haven't seen insidious but i think it is interesting to analyze this from the point of view of it's kind of the progression of james wan's a career as a director because yeah. this guy is quietly one of the biggest names in Hollywood. And even if you don't know his names, you have almost certainly seen one of the films that he's directed. Yeah. He started, um, I think his first movie, his debut movie was saw, right? Which is funny. Cause that's a movie where he and his producing partner, they had to spend several years just like scraping together the money to make this movie happen. And it happened. And it was a surprise. It, it was a surprising success, and over the course of the aughts, the decades, the decade, he um, did a few more kind of low-budget 
uh, horror and action movies and that sort of like building out his niche there. But he obviously wanted to do more. So with Insidious, that was a movie with Universal that was kind of a big studio programmer um, horror film. It was something with like an actual pretty significant budget. You had some stars in it. And um, most importantly, I think, and this is why it was accessible for a group of people that um, maybe Saul wasn't, uh, it was PG-13, right? And that was the same with The Conjuring, because he goes from Insidious and he does The Conjuring. And from there, he did like, not only did he do the sequel to The Conjuring, but then he did like, I think he did the most successful Fast and Furious movie. He did the Fast and Furious movie that made the most at the box office. Was it Furious 7? Something like that. And it exploded. I think it was the one that dealt with uh, Paul Walker's death. I think that's the one. And um, from there, he did Aquaman, another massive (laughs) uh, billion dollar movie, which clearly shows that he has the chops with... um, making not only um superhero but movies but you could see him doing like a sweeping fantasy movie so he's clearly a skilled director at what he does and i think maybe the jump between insidious and conjuring kind of shows how much he matured as a filmmaker even in that relatively short period of time yeah well and so you know to talk about kind of that transition insidious was scary and it was good um the conjuring was scary and good and also just really, really well thought through. It was, it, it is a much more mature version, like you said, of uh, kind of his, uh, his brand and, mm-hmm. and what he, and what he wanted to do. And so like the, um, the through line in terms of like uh, the, the whole conjuring universe and like kind of seeing different fingerprints and stuff like that, the conjuring, the original film, and then the conjuring two are in my opinion the two most like straightforward like they they watch the most similarly of any of the films mm-hmm. arguably the Annabelle prequel follows closely after that but then if you start talking about um, the nun and the devil made me do it they really watch a lot more like thrillers they are not what I would consider to be kind of like true horror they're more uh, a little bit more diluted in that pursuit and and the connection uh, makes sense because the first two Conjuring movies are the ones that were directed by the same guy, Annabelle Creation. Interestingly enough, um, in no small part because of the success of The Conjuring, James Wan gets this massive DC movie, Aquaman. Because of the success of another film in this franchise, that director gets another big DC movie, Shazam. So I think they kind of knew that they were stylistically similar, such that they uh, the, the studio gave these two directors similar kind of yeah. promotion gigs, um, doing these very fantasy-based kind of DC heroes with the deep mythos and everything. And um, again, I can't really speak to the most of the rest of the franchise, but I will say I, James Wan was definitely missed in the third one. His touch was uh, very apparent once you see its absence in this yeah. kind of franchise. Well, so in uh, you're speaking specifically of the devil made me do it, right? Yes, okay. Yes, yeah. Yes. So the thing with, cause I, I watched um, the devil made me do it. Um, just cause like I'd seen ads for it like all the time on YouTube or wherever. And then I actually went back and rewatched the conjuring two. Mm-hmm. And so seeing those two in direct succession, like, you know, the first two conjuring films, James Wan isn't one of these guys who, where it's like 
the the torture porn like nobody's getting out everybody's getting just ass blasted people get wrecked by the the demons and the spirits and whatnot but it's not just like this heinous torturous there is no winning kind of horror he's like you can very much see that there is there is light somewhere and the heroes can get through somehow um but i just buried the lead on my own point i was going somewhere with that well i if i might say maybe you'll find it after this um it is funny to me that um you say, oh, he doesn't emphasize the torture porn uh, with his contributions to the series. It's funny because he, maybe more than anyone else in Hollywood, contributed. Aside from maybe like Eli Roth, uh, did uh, more to like contribute uh, to creating the torture porn subgenre, or at least popularizing with it. Because Saw. he did do Saw, right? Yeah. Uh, well, but so I'm glad that he got that all out of his system at the same time. It, it's funny. He was such like a big underground success in Hollywood for that time for taking a movie that costs like nearly nothing to make saw making it into a huge thing that as early as like the last season of the Sopranos, uh, one of the mob, I know you haven't seen the show, so, but one of the mobsters he's trying to get into producing low budget horror movies, he said he, he finds this other uh, Asian director and he says, yeah, he's going to be our James Wan. You know, he's going to be for, for this movie. He's like, uh, he's so proud of how he's going to do like the next Saul, but like uh mobster themed. And it's, it's just, it, it, again, it kind of demonstrates uh, how impactful Juan has been at each uh, stage of his career. And look, I'm not trying to suck this guy off uh, talking about him. Although I will say James Wan, if you're hey, listening, bud, come on the pod, come on the pod. Uh, so I won't focus on him too much more, but um, yeah, no torture born. Yeah, no, he he's he's got his share of it, but you uh not not so ground in in the conjuring films. And right. so like I said, the especially uh if you watch The Nun and The Devil Made Me Do It next to each other, you understand kind of the the continued expanding direction of this cinematic universe because I'm going to be real, the type of real seat gripping white knuckle horror that you get in Conjuring 1 and 2 and then the early Annabelle um, that's not sustainable in my opinion for an entire cinematic universe. You can't shit out 20 of those because one it's, it's, it's hard. Like those are, those are very well done films, but also because like people will not continue being engaged with the content if you don't vary it at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think their decision to kind of move into like, you know, okay, Hey, we're going to experiment with some thriller stuff. We're going to give people some more warm feelies about, um, you know, the, the, the couple in the film is kind of like, you know, leading the whole thing. Uh, the Warrens, you know, yes. like that, uh, that didn't bother me so much. I know that critically it did worse and that's fine. I get it. But, um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just different. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting. It said uh, to go back briefly to the point about uh, torture porn. And I, I was never a huge torture porn guy, but um, if Can we get a counter, by the way, on social media for the number of times we've said torture porn in this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, for the longest time, I did kind of dismiss these movies, the conjuring and the insidious movies like them, paranormal activity. And, um, <laughs> I never really got into them uh, specifically because I had a bit of a snobbishness. And I think you'll remember all the way back to high school sure. about wanting to watch uh, 
violent horror movies. I remember um, introducing you guys to all of like the most ultra violent '80s horror movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so PG thirteen horror movies, just as a concept, rub me wrong for the longest time. And um, there were some exceptions here and there, like um, oh god, why can't I think of this movie's name off the top of my head? The one with the ring, where the ring. Yeah, I, like the, yeah, yeah. I always liked the ring, and I remember catching that, and I liked it. But for the most part, I, I just kind of disregarded movies of that sort. And I would say that I learned my lesson with this, but I think my favorite of the Conjuring movies was Annabelle Creation, and that was a film that was rated R, and you could tell it was notably more gory than the other movies in the series, at least the ones that I watched, like they usually avoid the most explicit sort of violence in the other movies. But in this one, you straight up see a woman like ripped in half and everything. Yeah, no, you, that demon gets a hold of her for sure. Well, and then like (laughs) she's this invalid the whole time and she's like missing an eye and it's, it's creepy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's out of pocket. Mm. I very much, I don't know that one. Like, it, it hits a li- it hits just a little bit different. Conjuring two was really, really. Uh, God, I remember specifically at one point there's like this tent in the hall, and they're teasing a jump scare around that tent for a full hour and a half before you actually get it, mm-hmm. and then it finally happens, and you still jump. Like that's that's the thing I love about this stuff is it's not just we're going to cut off your head or, oh, we're going to use the score and build up to a jump scare and then just, you know, hit you with it. It's like, no, we are going to play with you. We have you right where we want you. And that's a level of control over your audience and your craft that I think is very commendable, even if it's not, you know, it a more traditional control a la, you know, like your Wes Anderson's or your Tarantino's or who have you. Right. Your Totino's pizza rolls. And I think even then, and there are a lot of people who um, rag on movies that over rely on jump scares with good reason because all, because when it's done poorly, it, you it see sucks. it. You, because definitionally, you see it coming, and it's like oh whatever. But done well, it, it's done well. And even beyond oh, horror movies that are violent or not, I think there is another important division in the genre between. Horror films, and I'm not sure the best way to describe this distinction, but there are movies like the first two Conjuring movies that I will fully concede um, do a very good job at uh, momentarily in each uh, for in several points uh, actually getting you and getting getting you that little jump scare right. And when done well, uh, you know it's it, it makes for a very uh, Pleasant, I wouldn't say pleasant necessarily, but you know, you're getting your money's worth for a movie like this. You're getting a very thrilling uh, film experience. Where contrast this with, um, and this is another director whose work we've talked about pretty consistently on the pod, but he's the one I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Ari Aster with Hereditary, with uh, Midsummer, and these are movies that. Less strong in the way of jump scares, but they stick with you. They're, they're deeply the, unsettling. They're the movies that you think about when you're up late at night in your bed, and some of that imagery sticks with you. I, frankly, um, none of the imagery with like The Conjuring is like going to stick with you and make you up stay up late at night or anything like that. But for the duration of your two-hour movie, 
it it's a fun little diversion. See, for for me though, for my money, when if you're going to talk about um, these kind of more art film horror things that have come out in terms of you know like Hereditary and Midsummer and like a- along those lines, even I would throw in there like um, Get Out and some of the uh, so, like the uh, Get Out's just not scary. It's, anyway, I, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm sorry, guys. I know. I, I, I put it in there with those films. It might not be of the same caliber, but I uh-huh. find its intent at least right. marginally similar. I don't think those films get to happen without this bumper crop of horror that happened mid aughts, sure. early 2010s. Your orig- your OG paranormal uh, activity, which was honestly not bad. If you go back and rewatch it, like it gets memed to hell because, you know, it's funny and like, you know, you, you have a million of them now and a bunch of them are bad. But like the original one, especially for the time, it really got some balls rolling. Uh, original Conjuring, uh, Sinister, uh, Insidious, like you had this bumper crop of good, you know, not just bottom tier slasher horror anymore that was moving in a different direction using modern cinematography and techniques. And I don't think we get to the art film horror place without this kind of middle ground. And so I'm I'm a huge fan of these movies. I like them as a genre a lot. And I think they're a lot of fun to just like sit down and, you know, oh, uh, they they put out a new one. Let's throw it on Netflix after dinner and just, you know, give it a watch. Right, right. And I don't know if I firmly shared my opinion. I've kind of uh, I've kind of hinted at it, but I'll just go ahead and say it. The first mo- two movies pretty good third movie eh, less good my very favorite of the ones that i saw that are technically in this franchise annabelle creation yeah. and you know i'm, I'm not going to go ahead and say uh that i regret watching this or anything it would be i am kind of curious as to see like how they continue the franchise, at least the mainline series uh, forward from this. If they do, um, do, do I feel compelled after this to go and watch like the nun or the first Annabelle movie or anything? No, I don't. Um, uh, so, but you know, it's, it's now here and it's part of my life. So I guess I can say so. Uh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, in terms of continuing the series, we are currently aware of two, planned and announced um additions you have the nun 2 which god bless if there's one of these movies that did not need a second like (laughs) i'm sorry the nun was fine but it was almost like watching like an edgy teenager's take on indiana jones like it just was not it at all um in my opinion like it, it it had some of the you know, stock conjuring universe things where like, you know, the way that they interpret demons and stuff and stuff is kind of neat, but like they wind up finding the blood of Christ under this. It's just not, it's not the move. So the nun two, not super hyped about, um, the crooked man, uh, is a reference to the, uh, the character in the second, the character in the second film that kind of plays around a little bit and is creepy as all hell in my opinion. So I'm looking forward to that one, at least a little bit, but, yeah, no, so I, I do think it'll be interesting to see where they go. I, I wish they would do something weird. I know they won't, but it would it would be really it would be really fun to see them do like a super tongue in cheek, like um the uh the Warrens decide they're gonna get away and like stop doing this for a while, so they go on a vacation to Hawaii and then it's just haunted as shit <laughs> when they get to their house and they're like, Well, we didn't want to do this, so it's them like trying to ignore it and it's like almost funny in a way like you know that would be a that would be an interesting film but talking about the substance of the series the reason why i think um doing another um 
conventional movie about the Warrens and exploring their experience that might be getting harder to do is um, we haven't really touched upon this and I don't, I'm not super well versed or researched in all of this, but my impression is that even beyond the fundamental controversy of whether you believe in ghosts and demons or not, the Warrens are very polarizing figures IRL. They are like, like these aren't people that were made up for the movie. No, these they're, were they're based in reality. They are people who legitimately, I say legitimately in air quotes if you want them, um, have <laughs> gone out and um, explored these sorts of phenomena. I think the woman really does claim to have some sort of clairvoyant abilities. They really do claim to have been involved in exorcisms and all that sort of thing. And it's like. There are the people who are convinced these are scam artists preying upon vulnerable people. And that's has like a measure of ickiness brings a measure of ickiness to the franchise for a lot of people. I've not I've not researched this, so I can't I can't say uh one way or the other. I do find it interesting that um the further you go into the series a lot of like the actual conflict in the movies is more more like tangential to the actual case real world case that this is theoretically based on because in the in the third movie and the devil made me do it it's theoretically about a case from real life where there is a guy who killed another guy and then said oh it was demonic possession yeah um but so a lot of the movie is focused on the warren's hunting down like a witch who is like the illegitimate illegitimate daughter of a Catholic priest. And I don't know how much of that is based on something that happened in reality. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's they're They're using existing substance material to get into whatever story they want to tell. They're interested in telling. And like, honestly, especially as a movie like this one that exists in a, in a world after hereditary, there were moments where you saw like kind of some weird parallels, like with some of the witch totems and things where you were like, we've done this recently in a, <laughs> in a better way. Well, um, and so like, you know, it, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. And it's funny because, um, this is not even the first time in film, not by a country mile that the Warrens and their exploits have been, um, explored. I, I think the big seminal example that everyone remembers is, the Amityville Horror, which yep. is what um, everyone... And they briefly touch upon this in the beginning of the second film where they go through some of the controversy. And the, the thing about the Amityville Horror, and I, I've read a little bit about that, but th- this is one of those cases that I'm not going to go out and declare myself a believer, but you read about some of the discrepancies and, and it gets... It, it makes you understand why people think oh, ghosts or whatever must have been involved because it legitimately was like, how come all the kids remained asleep while um, someone was going through their house and shooting them? How come none of the neighbors heard gunshots? And there's ultimately probably a logical explanation for all this, but this is where 
the belief in the paranormal and conspiracy theories and such uh, come in. It's these little gaps in what we know, the, these unexplainable gaps that just invite you to come and like speculate. Well, and see, for me, I uh, the, <laughs> the the best analogy that I have in my in my life for that type of thing right now is um the Dietloff Pass. Like mm. there, there was recently apparently some research done and like someone, a, a bunch of people have come out and claimed to say, we have explanations for what happened. And the thing is, I'm not interested in them <laughs> because they suck. They're bad explanations. I, I don't care what your, what your weird ooga snow science says about this crap. Like it's weird and it's weird that it's only happened to one group of people once <laughs> And I don't care if occasionally once in a blue moon snow flies upward because of some weird updraft. Like, no, it was a friggin' Wendigo or <laughs> a UFO or a USSR thing gone horribly wrong. It was something like that. And so, you know, I think it's the same thing with like Amityville Horror. You know, it's like, is there potentially a solution that explains it in a way that doesn't involve that? Probably. But does it involve science that is borderline as tangentially viable as just saying, ah, I don't know, it was a freaking ghost, mate. Like, <laughs> more or less. No, it's, um, it's, uh, the example that I went in my mind, honestly, is, um, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is, um, the film of Bigfoot. That if, if you've ever seen a blurry picture of Bigfoot on the internet, chances are it comes from that video. And here's the thing. Does Bigfoot actually exist in the sense that if you were to comb through the Pacific Northwest um, to try to find this creature, you're almost certainly not going to find anything. But there does exist this piece of evidence, this video that actual experts have looked at, and they've said, oh, it's we have a hard time actually explaining um, some some of what's going on here. If this was a suit, it was an incredibly advanced suit for the time. All yeah, that sort, yeah, yeah. all that sort of thing. And so you can kind of hold space for both. Like there's probably a logical explanation. But this is why I I, I find it a little distasteful when people dunk too hard on the kind of people who are enthusiastic about this sort of thing because oftentimes the debunkers are just as um are just as like uh, uh i don't know what the right word here is but they're just as like hyper focused as the people who are you know the hardcore true believers they're only interested in looking at these cases to um to advance their own kind of agenda here and yeah no. i think i think what uh what, what my co-host means to say is the 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 real bigfoot is in your heart yes he lives there if you invite him in please join me in prayer to bigfoot no you know uh, what <laughs> I, I have to say this now you know what the most interesting bigfoot theory that i've heard? i literally talked about this at lunch today go off it's that uh, and this isn't oh bigfoot or aliens or anything no it's that um if you believe that there was such a thing like a flesh and blood creature as Bigfoot, it's there's someone I remember suggesting that um, Bigfoot in the sense of there being these hominids did exist and they did exist up into modern times in the Pacific Northwest. But by the time that like, you know, you had Anglo-Saxon habitation in the Pacific Northwest, they are already like critically endangered. And the last spots that people actually credibly um, remember uh, citing Bigfoot in the middle to later part of the 20th century were all in like a relatively close vicinity of Mount St. Helens. And so the idea is when that volcano erupted, it killed the very last Bigfeet. 
<laughs> which okay, okay. That's and that's why now in an era where we have all these you know more advanced uh, filming technologies and you know infrared and everything, why um, all commercially available? Why we haven't found the Bigfoot? It's because they died very recently. Because of a volcano. So in memoriam, we are going to be uh, taking a small donation to build a, uh, a shrine yes. to the lost Big Feet. Yes. At the base of Mount St. Helens. Yes. Uh, yeah. So go, go ahead and forward that to um, bury me Sasquatch at hotmail.net. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So the conjuring, huh? <laughs> we're not that off topic. I no, mean, we're talking, no, no, no. if we're talking about ghosts, we might as well. Look, do, do, do you. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm not going to give you the binary yes, no. How much, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being they're just making this shit up, and 10 being I am a full religious believer, where are you with just the general Warren mythos to the extent that you're familiar with it? Uh, I mean, the Warrens specifically, honestly, I'm not like super comfortable in like, you know, I haven't done a lot of research on like them as individuals but like the whole concept of demonic possession exorcisms uh paranormal existence in general i would say i probably land at like a soft six Mm. honestly like i'm i'm not like a you know they are with us they are here they are real they are all around i'm not that type um but i'm also i'm like heavily not a oh it is completely impossible it is such bs because like you know sure you can write it off as just humans want to maintain some idea of continuity between this life and the next. So of course ghosts and ancestors and all that shit just kind of runs together, whatever those people need more magic in their lives. I think (laughs) like, you know, do I think that we will ever definitively prove ghosts or demons or anything like that? No. And I don't, I don't think that's really the point either. I, uh, you know, like you still have subsets of the Catholic church that perform exorcisms like to this day in parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, like, I don't know, like it, p- people that are like, you know, oh, well, how would you believe in a ghost? It's like, are you religious? <laughs> I mean, you know, for, for a <laughs> lot know? of people, I think the way religious people kind of compartmentalize this, it's like, well, you know, with aliens, right? The question with intelligent extraterrestrials is not do they exist? Because when you consider the vastness of the universe and how little we know about it, I think we can fairly say that the odds that there is at least one other intelligent species out there in the universe at this point in time, it's close to 100%. That's like, it's almost inarguable. The question is, okay, are they visiting or contacting us on a regular basis? To which, you know, then the that gets a lot more dicey. Gets pop. Uh, so, yes, you do have a lot of religious people who will fully concede a belief in life after death and angels and demons and all that thing, but they draw the line on, okay, they're visiting us regularly in the year of our Lord, 2021. I think that's what people yeah. have a hard time uh, getting over. And I mean, I, th- I, th- I don't know. I just There's something to me about like this weird natural human predilection to like have your hair stand up on end when you're in a dark hallway, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I, I don't know. Like, sure, it could just be that we evolved from a creature and, you know, we are not necessarily the best hunters. And so we kind of have some prey animal instincts or something. I don't know. But like, as long as people have been able to relate their experience, there has been some type of description of, you know, oh, yeah, these are people that died that are still here somehow. And like, you know, it, it, I 
I, I take equal issue with, you know, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who whenever he talks about it, it's like, think about how many people have died in the world. And, you know, if, if all of those people were still hanging around, what would be happening? You know, we have so many billion ghosts. And it's like, OK, I'm not claiming that every single man, woman and child who's died on the face of the earth is floating around somewhere. But, mm. you know, it, there's more finesse to it than that. There this movie and a lot of movies like it, um, The Conjuring, that is, they explore the nom- phenomenon from a very religious perspective but there are a subset of these people out there um who are really into not only ghosts specifically and possession specifically but the paranormal generally and they'll call themselves parapsychologists and they'll talk about esp and all that sort of thing espn like where you watch sports (laughs) um just these extrasensory abilities and all that um they do believe in ghosts in the broadest sense but their whole position is that there's some sort of pseudoscientific explanation to this in the sense that they believe psychic powers exist and there's some psychic um, essence to a human being and that if you die under specific circumstances, there's like psychic energy left over that's floating around in the ether and that's how they... And so they believe, okay, if you think that, um, then there's a chance of actually exploring this phenomenon in a scientific manner. And this is Dan Aykroyd was really obsessed with this for a while. And this was the basis of at least his first draft for Ghostbusters. Right. Cause yeah. this is what people don't get. Dan Aykroyd actually believes 90% of like the Ghostbusters. It's like a real description of how ghosts work with the ectoplasm and everything. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, like ectoplasm, it's like you have all, if you actually Google this, you have a lot of people who are incredibly obsessed with like, and you see this with UFOs stuff and whatever, it's like, oh, a little bit of jelly was left behind. That's like a ghost or some other um, kind of paranormal it's the ghost apparition. Of smuckers. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, uh, so that's, it, it's it's fun when you get people with different perspectives on these sorts of things. Yeah, sure. Where where do you put yourself numerically? I I said about a six. Where do you where do you find yourself? Um, the thing is, again, definitionally, if you are um talking about ghosts and spirits and everything, you're tying yourself into. Do you have some sort of religious belief? And I guess at this point, right now, I'm more on the agnostic end of things. I will concede that I would like there to be some sort of positive afterlife but i i can't say that there is and i uh, even if you want to talk about the scientific stuff you know the pseudoscientific stuff i i'm not sure whether i buy that you know ghosts are esp leftovers of our consciousness after death i i, I just i just don't have a very strong opinion and there's very little hard evidence out there in the world to um, uh, prove that it exists. But definitionally, you can't prove that it doesn't exist either. So whatever. And there, there's that, that pesky burden of truth getting passed back and forth like a damn tennis match. Mm-hmm. I feel strongly about other things for whatever reason that um, I can't prove. Um, I, I feel strong, relatively strongly about the existence of extraterrestrial life. And this just might be my own personal preferences. <laughs> what, what I find. Mothman. Um, <laughs> uh, eh. um, I, so you're a big fan of the third kind then? or Well, when I was... Uh, there are very few actual good um, alien contact. I'm not talking about any movie that has to do with alien What was the film that came out? I think it was like four years ago. 
they landed in like this giant black spire and they had to learn to talk with them and stuff. Oh gosh, what was it? I don't think it was called Contact. Are you talking about Arrival? Arrival. Arrival was a good movie. Arrival um, was fantastic. Arrival, Independence Day. But there, every now and again, I feel, feel like every now and again, they try to do a movie that's paranormal activity or insidious, but for alien contact. So you are talking about like the fourth kind. And, that's, and for whatever <laughs> reason, they've never I been... I don't know a, why I said the third kind. <laughs> um, It's the prequel. The, uh, the uh, Alien is a good movie that does horror but for it's hard jimmy neutron great work with extraterrestrials well i mean like the uh the horror sci-fi combo in that sense like doing a horror you didn't find jimmy neutron scary uh (laughs) the yolkians event horizon now that was a spooky movie really spooky movie now that that is a movie that the imagery actually stuck with me. sticks with you yeah yes um it is rather frightening I've been fr- I've been done a frighten as the uh, as the small bean kids say. <laughs> Are you rebranding as a soft boy now? Is oh, that yeah. what this like, is? You know, this this whole podcast is basically the sad boy hour. We should rename it the sad boy hour. <laughs> <laughs> we would need to do a lot more talking about X's and probably take like three shots before recording and put and on some LCD sound system. We, and we know we're going to call up Drake and get his personal permission to use Marvin's uh, room, Marvin's room as our intro. <laughs> <laughs> but then after the intro, it's just playing really, really softly, almost like subliminal messaging under the pod. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a four to one ratio Marvin's room to uh, what's, what's, what's just a good kicker that you could throw in there and that cocktail. Just uh, sad. Uh, <laughs> and then someone like you by Adele. <laughs> Diary of Jane. <laughs> oh no. Oh, that's a different that's a different level. I don't know why, but I'm thinking of have you heard the um the the song that um the the vocals to Sean Kingston's uh, Beautiful Girls put to uh put to Slipknot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, I love technology. It's great. No, I believe that we should go back to a new dark age so that I never have to listen to anything. Like, I actually really liked it. I don't know why, but I'm ashamed that I liked it. That's the problem. God, see, I I love just putting whatever... whatever song you want and just putting it over the changes to a uh, giant steps. So like, you know, really fast jazz, really angular Coltrane kind of thing. And it's just like, <laughs> we, we live in a society. We truly do. When we actually start um, filming our podcasts, I promise you we're going to do it with the a 24 kind of like moonlight lighting. L- look, look up moonlight lighting or moonlight film lighting. You know what I'm going to moonlight film lighting like a lot of blue and purple oh so you want to give us like the gay slash bisexual lighting yes 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 i i I know i'd heard that there was a better term for a24 lighting because a lot of like the indie films nowadays will will do that we're definitely gonna be like pretty hard on bisexual lighting i'm 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 going to say right now yeah i mean it's uh what's not to like it's lighting it's uh, it's modern. It's hip. It's still Pride Month. What are you What are you gonna do? Oh yeah, it is. I guess still Pride Month. We haven't done anything for Pride Month. Um, Happy Pride. <laughs> 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 That's it. I have a I have a streamer here in the studio just for you. Uh, whoever whoever this is listening to this that this applies to. Hope hope it's been a good Pride. 
Uh, so the conjuring. <laughs> so let's talk about stranger than fiction. I mean, the conjuring, um, um Look, just if you haven't seen any of these movies, you're completely canon blind. Get in there. What are you doing? What start with the first one, the, the OG Conjuring, and if you like that, you want some more, then you can branch out. You can either do them in release order or you can do them chronologically if you want to be, you know, a hard ass or something. I th- I think it's worth your time, especially if you're into, you know, mid-tier horror. It's it's good. Mhm. I is fine. That's all I have to say. It was fine. Yeah. But I might not be a very specific target audience. Uh, this, this has been an episode. Right. My name's Tucker. My name is Jeff. Uh, don't be demonically possessed.